Welcome to Two Paleys on a Pod. I'm Michael Paley, usually from Budapest, sometimes from Jerusalem, but this week from Queens, New York. Yes, that's right. We are together here for the first time recording. It's very exciting. It's a bit of an overcast day in July, but nice to be together. We're usually not together when we do this. We're usually far away. But this time we're sitting in Bria's lovely living room, festooned with pictures of my family and old memories. So if I get a bit nostalgic this time, you'll know why. Yes. So uh, we thought today for our topic, we would talk about prayer and what prayer means to each of us and any other thoughts that we we have on it. Yeah. What I was thinking about with the prayer was not to talk about prayer in a formal way. In other words, I'm a teacher of Jewish prayers, so I can explain what the prayers mean and why they're there and the history of them. This is really more interior. This is really what it means for me to try and pray and how I go about it and a little bit of my memory of, of how I got to this point. I'm a rabbi, so as you might imagine, I lead prayers a lot, but I rarely talk about my own prayer life. And that's what I thought I would do after I listened to a bit about your prayer life. Oh, okay. Well, for me, I, I went to a Jewish day school in Manhattan. And so prayer was something that we had to be there for in, in the morning. It was part of our attendance was tefillah. And so I think because I was never a morning person, I didn't really like waking up and having to get over to school that that prayer became somewhat of a chore. You know, it was like a task that you had to you had to complete. So I didn't find the joy in it, although I'm a singer. So I did like the musical part of it. You know, I've always appreciated the melodies and and, you know, I I could easily memorize the, the prayers and would feel, you know, confident in that. But as I got older, it took me a long time to develop my own prayer where I was really, really comfortable with what it meant. Because to me, it's, it can't just be about reading these, these words in Hebrew that I don't really understand. Although if I'd taken the time to read them in English, that probably would have been a good idea. Maybe. Only maybe. Only maybe. But as, as I've gotten older and I've traveled the world and I've seen how other people pray and I've, I've been in my 12-step recovery for many years now, and prayer is a huge part of it because it's all about turning your will and your life over to a power greater than yourself, a power of your understanding. But still, it's, it's only more recently that I was able to, I started, I started doing what's called two-way prayer, which is a piece of 12-step 12 12 recovery, but it's, it can also be separate. And what it is, is you, you listen to the inner voice inside of you for guidance. So you ask a question or say something to God, and then you listen for a response. And often that response, you know, has, has some great, great wisdom and meaning in it. So I've been doing this two-way prayer practice. You know, I try to do it most days. And, and then uh, other people share what they heard from your prayer. And it's just a really beautiful experience that I, I find a calming way to start my day. And, um, and I do receive guidance. It's, it's often more like slow down, surrender, forgive, trust, let me take care of you type of, type of relationship with God that I, I haven't always felt because I think when there's, when there's struggles in life, and right now our, our country is dealing with some really major struggles with the 
you know, the overturn of Roe v. Wade and, and the mass shootings that have been happening lately. So it just doesn't feel like, you know, sometimes it's like, well, where's God in all of this? And not that we can blame God, you know, you, you'll have opinions on this, Daddy, but, but more just trying to trust that, that everything is aligned and everything will be okay. And that's something that I, I just have to remind myself of all the time because I feel like otherwise God becomes more, more punishing and that feels unsafe. So that's been my experience. I've always had a very strong experience of prayer. I, I, I have a story, which is that when I was eight years old, only eight, my, uh, my grandfather, Moshe Polevsky, uh, died suddenly in the summertime. He was only 65 years old, younger than I am now. Um, and my father, who was not a religious person in many ways, but he was a, a dutiful person. And, um, and so he went to shul every morning to say Kaddish for his father um, at Mishkan Tefillah in Newton. Um, and he would often take me and then he would drive me to school. And it was a wonderful time to spend with my father. He was just a jolly and lovely man. I can see a picture of him right across um, from, my, from this uh, uh, microphone. And uh, one time when I went to shul when I was eight years old in the morning minion, I looked at my father and, and I saw that he was crying. And I'd never seen my father cry before. Laughing, yes. Crying, no. So I said to him, uh, why are you crying? I was only eight. And he said, well, I'm thinking about your grandfather. And I said, well, does crying help? And he said, I think it does help. And he said, in a few minutes, we're going to stand up and pray and do the prayer, the Amidah. I now know, but I was only eight. Um, so you stand up on the, on the top of the, of the bench that he was sitting on and try and shut your eyes and get a picture of your grandfather and, 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 and maybe you'll get him back. And I badly wanted to get him back. Um, and so I stood up on the bench and I listened to the Amida and I shut my eyes and I felt tears and I just could see my grandfather so vividly in front of my eyes and I still can see it. Even now, I'm 70 years old, I can still shut my eyes right now, sitting here in Queens and I have the picture of my grandfather uh, sitting on the beach, sitting in his porch, you know, uh, going away, leading a seder, all those things. I can, I can just get back to it. So for me, prayer was always very restorative and it, and it had lots of richness. And I have to say, when I was a kid, I would walk because I became a kind of, I don't know, religious, uh, in my family, religious fanatic. At around 10 years old, I used to walk on Shabbos morning um, through the woods to Shul, about a mile and a half away. Um, by myself. My, there was a, a, a pathway, and my mother would let me do that. I'm looking at a picture of my mother now also. Uh, and, um, and then the rabbi, uh, Israel Kasis, would actually drive me home um, at the end of the service, even though it was Shabbos. Um, he made an exception. Usually he only drove right to his house, but he would, let, he would drive me home, drop me off, and then go home. Um, and so, so even in my youth, I was, I was a, an attendee at uh, youth services and even the main service at Michigan Phil, which was, in my view now, kind of a horrible 1950s conservative synagogue. You know, Bree, you went to a friend's seminary where you had to do silent meditation in the morning or some kind of a meeting. How, how was that for you? So I left the Heschel School after sixth grade and I went to friend's seminary. And that was a Quaker school. 
And people often said, why would you go to a Quaker school if you're Jewish? But actually there were many Jews there because it was like a, a New York City private school and that's just who you find there sometimes. So again, part of being on time was, was getting to the meeting house at, you know, by eight or whatever time it was. And then we'd have 10 minutes of silence. Yeah, it could be called a meditation, but um, it, was, it was just about like sitting in silence, I guess, you know, contemplating the day, starting the day off that way. And then you'd, you'd end that 10 minutes with a handshake to your neighbor. Really? Yeah. Friendship. Yeah, you know, it's Quaker, that's the Quaker kind of beliefs. Yeah, Yeah. friends seminary, you know, you you shake hands. You know, I was was only at that school for two years, seventh and eighth grade. And in those grades, you don't, you don't really say anything, you know, like it's supposed to be silent. But as you get to high school, you actually, if you're moved to, can stand up and, and share something that comes to you. And I think I would have liked that if I'd been, you know, able to be, to be part of that time. But uh, we were like still too young and they didn't, I don't know, they didn't let us do that. But, you know, yeah, all these things have come into my life and, and shaped me in, in some way because I, I do feel like I'm a believer. You know, I'm a spiritual person. Like we, my dad and I went away um, this past weekend and to Woodstock, New York, you know, very famous place. Yeah. And there was a shop there with all sorts of spiritual healing tools and items. And I, I bought a pendulum, which um, I had been told is a, is a good tool for guidance, that you ask the pendulum a yes or no question, and it gives you an answer and, and a direction. And just even buying something like that is like an act of faith, you know, because yeah. like, otherwise it's just a piece of metal. I would have to say that I was extraordinarily lucky um, I've told this story on this podcast before about meeting people from my religious community, the, the Chavrat Shalom. I don't know if I've ever told the story of the first night, but I might have. When I went to the Chavrat on Franklin Street in Cambridge, um, and Zalman Schachter, who was to become a main teacher for me, was sitting, singing a niggin for a, you know, a wordless tune for more than an hour, and that was it. Um, we sat on the floor, and we were part of a community and we just sang together or maybe even hummed together. Um, and that was extremely powerful to me. And when I asked him if that was a service, he said, yes. And I said, can we do that? And he said, yes, we're in charge. And I was so interested that we were in charge about prayer. It was so different. I mean, so different, like you can't hardly call it the same thing at all from Michigan Tefillah, which was the suburban synagogue, not a bad suburban synagogue, but just a suburban Jewish synagogue that didn't put much effort into prayer. It was mostly listening to the cantor, the chazan, cantor Shelkin, sing for you. It was a passive experience. And all of a sudden I was in an active experience. And that was extremely powerful to me. And then the next year, I started to go to the Chavra every day to go and uh, study. Instead of go to the second half of my 12th grade at Brookline High School, I would go to the Chavra and I would... And we would start off, these people, Jim Kugel, Steph Krieger, um, uh, Terry Sokol, Charles Cohen, and Steve Jenden, um, we started off and we would pray for about a half an hour. Um, we put, put on tefillin, um, and that was like a thunder for me. That was the first time that I understood that the word tefillah, which is the word for, is often translated into prayer, was a bad translation. That, that, that the word for prayer is from the word padros, which is 
It's a word for praise, right? You praise God. That's the prayer. But tefillah, and particularly the act of tefillah, lehit palel, is a reflexive verb to intercede into yourself, to judge, palal, to judge into yourself and to go deep into yourself. And I, I kind of think that when you talk about the two-way prayer, that's what it is. It's hard to go deep in yourself. And that year of going to the Chavra um, in, in the morning to study Jewish texts, but first praying um, in our meditation room, sitting on pillows on the floor and being kind of uh, led together, that was a transformative to me. It, it opened up a, a, I, what, what I understand to be my inner life. You know, no, nothing more, nothing less. I, 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 no one ever tells you about that when you're when you're in high school. You know, you're you're reading novels maybe about it, and you're and maybe Catcher in the Rye and something like that, where they were, or you know, or or I don't know many, many other ones. But but for me to go and pray with people, particularly people that I cared deeply about and felt cared about, um, was a tr- the beginning of a, of really a significant part of my life journey. Well, I don't know why it's coming to me. Like, so my birthday is in a few days on July 10th. And I was born on Rosh Chodesh Av. Hmm. And Av also means father, right? It does mean father, yeah. I never think about it that way. So you became a father on Rosh Chodesh Av of that year, 1983. (laughs) And I think you told me once about, about praying when I was born. I did. I did because that morning was Rosh Chodesh, so I, I was at the Alice Peck Day Hospital in Lebanon, New Hampshire, in the middle of a f- a pastures and forest. You know, it was beautiful little country hospital. You can't think about it like a city hospital. It was really a I don't know. And we were in the birthing rooms, which were all you know, wooden paneled and curtains. And there it was. There's a line that says about Rosh Chodesh Av that it, it, it's connected to Adar. It says, Misha Nichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha, a person who enters the month of Adar, the month of Purim, is increased in happiness. Misha Nichnas Av, Menachem Av, comforting Av, Matim Besimcha, is reduced in happiness. But there I was, really happy. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I had never been more happy than that, maybe in my whole life, than uh, greeting you into this world. And you get to say the prayers called Hallel on Rosh Chodesh. And so I, so I stood in that room where there had been, you know, so much birth noise before, you know, coming, coming into the world. And I, I davened, I prayed, I davened. Daven is a different word than prayer. I, I was swept away by the Hallel Psalms um, and I knew all the tunes for them. Like I think I never prayed before in my life. So there it was. It says, Misha Nichnas Menachem Av, the one who enters comforting Av, Matim Besimcha, is reduced in happiness. But there I was, I'd never been happier in my life. And so the Hallel was really an antidote to that. And even now, when I look at your cute little face, you know, I don't usually do this in the same room as you, but here I am. I, I, I see you. I remember that first second when I became a father on Rosh Chodesh Av. And it also have to be honest and say that the Mashiach. The Messiah um, is, some people think the Messiah would be born on the first of Av. Not that you are, but I, I just, you know, I just note it as a, uh, that it seemed like a really special day, you know, and we had just gone on on your birth from, um, with my parents, they had driven us up from south of Boston at the beach, all the way back to, to Hanover, where we were living when I was at Dartmouth, 
I'm in, in, in the middle of the night in my father's very fast car. We made like a like incredibly fast time um, in order for you to be born in the very place that you, I believe, were supposed to be born in this world. I know I could have been born in um in Quincy, you know, <laughs> yeah, in Massachusetts. When you were when you were growing up, I took you to shul every Shabbos, and it was the Chavurah shul, right? Minyan Ma'at at um, at um, uh, Anshe Chesed. Is that Anshe But it really was the descendant of the Chavurah with all these people. I mean, one amazing thing for me is that I still get to to daven with people that I've been davening with for 50 years. Like a few weeks ago, I was in Jerusalem and we were having Shabbos dinner and there was David Roskies and George Saverin and Jeff and Judith Green and Bella Saverin and, and my brother Richard and all these people I've known for more than 50 years. You know, in fact, the person I know, knew the shortest in that group was my wife, Annie, your mother. I've only known her for 45 years. So, so the, so something about this prayer has built a community for me in my life. And of course, partially that's just because just we see each other every week, you know? Not many communities have such a rigorous pattern of coming together. When I was in Shiva, I saw the same guys and I davened every morning with the same guys every morning, you know, and every afternoon. So there was, and even when I was at Columbia, you know, my, my teacher, David Weiss Halivni, died last week. It's the time for my teachers to be dying, I guess. And every day at Mincha, at Earl Hall at Columbia, David Weiss Halivni would walk over um, um, and we'd do Mincha with about a hundred other people. And then we'd study Talmud together, you know, not as Tim teaching me in the classroom, but actually just studying sometimes. And he would teach the students. I was not a student, I was the university chaplain. Um, so I know that prayer creates a community um, that's significant. So I, I'm just wondering what you experienced about that when you were growing up. Well, Anshu Chesed, so it's on 100th and West End. So for, for some years, we had a bit of a walk from we were living on 122nd at one point. And, you know, Saturday morning, I like to sleep late. I like to watch cartoons. So, so yeah, again, I think I, I didn't always see it as as such a... Of a, a joyful, you know, community situation, but but looking back, you know, I I do have very fond memories of like the busyness of being there and kids and lots of people and there's like a little room off to the side that you could kind of take a break if you needed. And but I think what I remember the most is watching you really in your element and really just happy to be there and committed to being there. And you'd hug everyone and you'd. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd sit next to whoever you were sitting with and I knew everyone and they felt like kind of extended family to me. And it makes me like a little emotional because I still go to the Upper West Side now, but I don't go there anymore. Yeah. And you don't live there anymore. Well, we, and also we didn't generate a multi-generational shul in the way that the Orthodox community has. So when I go there, I just see all my old friends getting older and older. (laughs) So, and some aren't, aren't even there anymore. Yeah, like Howard, emotional. Yeah. like Howard Eisenberg, you know, who he always had a poem about how to put away the chairs and put away the books. At the end of every service. Yeah, you know, like like just like kind of things you could always count on. And we'd usually go to someone's house for lunch and it would be in the neighborhood and we'd have like a nice meal and then we'd walk all the way back uptown yeah. and... <laughs> And you'd take a nap or, you know, like there was a drink during show. I would be sleeping. Yeah. There are all these kind of rituals about it that, you know, I've, I've had to try to find for myself. When I went to Northeastern, we had a Hillel 
house that was, you know, not not as big as like Harvard or BU, but we had something. And and I would get involved in services, um, especially. And lead them. Yeah, I'd lead them. There was a cachette service that was a lot of Debbie Friedman tunes, and you know, I I knew Debbie Friedman. I love Debbie Friedman, so we had a personal family relationship with her. Um, so that was also fun. I remember when when she got sick saying to to my community at Northeastern, you know, we, we should say her Misha Barach prayer for her. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I always love the Misha Barach prayer and um, loves to sing it. Maybe I should sing it now. Maybe you should sing it right now. I'm gonna sing. Misha Barach imoteinu mekor habracha leavoteinu Bless those in need of healing with Rafua Shalema, the renewal of body, the renewal of spirit, and let us say Amen. Well, that was breathtaking. <laughs> Makes me cry about Debbie Friedman. Every summer, um, your mother and I would get to go into the mountains with the Wexner program and spend a week. Uh, uh, praying with Debbie Friedman, which was quite unique because in, in, in some ways, prayer for me is, it's it's the thing I can do wherever I go. You know, I, when I went to live in Budapest, I walked into this little shul called the um, uh, Peshti Shul, um, and I knew all the prayers, you know. <laughs> you know, I I could stand up there and I read the Haftarah and uh, or sang the Haftarah, and you're like, I... I, I it, it was a way of opening a door and feeling at home right away. With Debbie, of course, it was a unique experience. It was it was never like that. I, I have to tell this story. I, when I met Debbie Friedman, my sister Marianne had gone to Kutz Camp. She was in part of the Reform Movement, and she knew Debbie Friedman, so I had heard her name, but I'd never met her. I would have no way of meeting her um, because I was a member of traditional. Um, uh, Minyan uh, and traditional prayer circles. But I once went to a very unspiritual thing, which is the General Assembly of the of the JFNA, of the Jewish Federations of North America in Boston. And and I was supposed to give a talk. I, I did give a talk that morning on, uh, on actually Jewish renewal. I, I did it with Michael Strassfeld and one other person. I was on the dais. And my sister, Nancy, was already very ill. Um, and she was really at the very, almost at the very end of her life. Um, she was 46 years old, very young. And she was part of the Federation in Boston. And she said, I want to be one of the workers for your talk, you know, so that, um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be one of the people that stand by the door and direct people and, and like that. And I, I thought that was a great idea. And she says, but it won't be easy for me. So you have to come to my house early and drive me to the to the conference. And so so I did. So there's my sister with her arm in a sling. Um, and I give my talk um, in one of the rooms at this big conference. At which point I hear through the wall, right? The, 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 the collapsible wall, this ethereal voice, beautiful voice, just singing just as you did. Misha Berach, you know, like that. I never heard the song before. I know the words Misha Berach. In fact, it was even well known for Misha Berach of, of doing it as a pattern, but I'd never heard that voice before. And I have to tell you, Bria, that voice of Debbie Friedman came into my 
into my body and put its arms around my heart, you know? And all of a sudden I'm on the dais and I find it unbearable to sit there. There are lots of people listening, right? I just, I can't do anything about it. I get up, I walk out and I walk next door. And I just, that's the first time I ever saw Debbie Friedman. She's sitting there with my friend, Rachel Cowan. Also, neither of them are alive anymore. Um, and they're doing a prayer service, a healing service. And I, I walk out, I go get my sister. I say, someone else will stand by the door. You come with me. And she came over to there and she looked at me and we started to cry. And she looked at me and she said, you know, Michael, my sister was fought spirituality in some ways. Um, uh, I can see a picture of her also um, uh, right there, um, really in the very end of her life. And, and she said, you know, I'm dying. I said, you know, Nancy, I, I know that. And she said, that was the only time we ever had that conversation in, 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 in the entire time of her illness. Hmm. And then we looked up and my parents were sitting four rows in front of us. So they saw us and, I, and, and the four of us stood there and we, and we just felt this moment with Debbie Friedman's voice singing and, and just enrapturing us. At which point I really started to think about Richie and I really miss Richie. And I want to see him. And then this woman comes over to me and she says, you know, you seem to need help and I'm a rabbi, but what I really am is a student of your brother. I studied Basuda them last year in Jerusalem. <laughs> so the five of us are there, Nancy, me, my mother and my father, and this woman who is standing in for my brother, who's a rabbi and is a bassoon player, you know, like my brother. And, and that together was my introduction to something really remarkable moment, you know, and um, and we and we did all hug each other and and at least celebrate the moment of life, you know, as as it was ebbing away. And then some after, time after that, she died. Hmm. I do think, you know, as I as I think about standing sitting here and talking with you, that both my grandfather Morris and my sister Nancy um, are part of my prayer life. Hmm. Um, that life and death. Being on that edge between life and death, um, I think is a piece of it. Um, the certain sense that you can jump over the boundary into death, but not die because of the love that is around you and see more, open up more, retain more, feel more in yourself, have access to more. That, that's, that's worth everything to me, I think. Just everything. Even as I go to Vishigrati Utsa and the Peshti Shulan Budapest, I still can feel more there, you know? It is the time of my week in Shulur when I put my tefillin on in the morning where I feel more. And, um, and those feelings, you know, those feelings, those emotions, to use your language, they manage me, you know? That's the, I think that's the way I, I don't regulate myself as much. I think I'm regulated, but I, I break out of the regulation. I'm, I can, I can dig deeper, think more vividly. I would say that, I want to say, uh, that I was lucky to be part of one of the best prayer circles, prayer movements, um, I feel in Jewish history. When I went to the Chavara in Somerville, finally in Somerville, um, we would come together on a Friday night. Uh, we would sit on cushions in the prayer room. Um, if you want to see it, you can get the book called The Jewish Catalog. Um, you can open it up and there's our room, no chairs, just a, and, and it wasn't an open service. It was just the people in the community. And we would really 
pray together on a Friday night. Different people would lead it, and I would lead it also. I'm, I'm not, I can hardly believe that I was good enough to lead it, but we would sway, and we would, and we would really kind of. Um, it was almost an ecstatic experience, much more Hasidic. Um, I, I don't. It, it was the 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 prayers that I came from in uh, at Michigan Tefilla were shut down. You know, they were. They weren't rote. I think that they work for a lot of people, and maybe they even work for me. I think all kinds of prayer work for me. Islamic prayer. I remember the first time that I was, I was thinking about this when I was in Jerusalem just uh, two weeks ago. First time I joined a prayer line um, for with Muslims, um, and I was just sitting there with them, and all of a sudden they all bent over and prostrated themselves at the same moment, and and I did also. I realized how that, how amazing that was, or or even. On a boat on the on the Ganges River in in uh, Varanasi and Benares, washing garlands float down the river. You know, I I've had lots of moments going to Easter services in the Holy Sepulchre. You know, going to Christmas services in the Cathedral Church St. John the Divine. All of these have been really remarkable prayer services to me. But that Friday night service at the Chavra with with Art Green and uh, Zalman. It was something unique, and partially it was unique because it had a lot of Hasidic authenticity to it, right? It was community, it was mm. being together, it was supporting each other, but still searching. Mm. I remember Everett Gendler's beautiful face, you know, sitting there sometimes. He didn't come every Friday night because he had kids and he didn't live in the neighborhood, but he would come sometimes, and I remember that vividly. But really Zalman more than anybody, Zalman and his davenology. You know, he would he would teach us about how to do kind of an inner search, a spiritual search during those moments. Um, and I never lost that with him. Um, and one of the great, why I think it was one of the great things is because it was men and women together. So we had the kind of authenticity of the Hasidic world. I think it would, I felt it was, it wasn't like Hasidic, but it was, it was very rich, very serious, very deep, very consistent. You, everybody participated. It wasn't passive. It was an incredibly active, engaged experience. We all when added as much as we could. That's my recollection of it, and I'm sure that I'm right. Um, uh, and men and women did it together, and that and and we were fearless in some ways, and that was that was transformative to me. And many years later, when I was the rabbi at Dartmouth College in Hanover, where you were born, I had people: David Seidenberg, David Silberswig, Hilo Goldberg, uh, and Shirley Idelson, and Nancy Flam. You know these people, and and many others, and, and Gabriel, Doug Tillman. Many other people that sat around, Justin Ronaldson, I can just keep on mentioning one after another, Rob Eshman, they were hmm. they they were very serious. They we came together and we would daven. On a Friday night we would come to the we would come and we would wrestle there. We would really engage ourselves and each other and we would support each other. We would and people would cry. I remember the first time I went in there and I saw one of the people crying and I, I thought maybe she had an allergy. So I went over to her and said, do you have an allergy? She said, no, I was moved. I said, oh, oh, that was really funny. I mean, what was I thinking? <laughs> why did I, why, I just hardly could take it seriously. Even the Bronfman Youth Fellowship, sometimes Angela Buckdahl, then Angela Warnick would lead, a, would lead the, the um, Havdalah and it was so powerful. It was so rich. It was so apart as a moment that it was kind of like life that you would really have, but, but uh, with more intensity almost to an exponent, you know, mm. some, some, some amounts more. And, and for me, that's been really the, the consistent uh, feeling, you know, that I've, 
always had, I once asked Gabe, my, our, my son, your brother, why he continued to come to shul. And he said, I'd like to see you sing with your friends and then drink with them. So I, I thought that was a good deconstruction of what I do, but it wasn't really what I do. Hmm. What I really try and do is open up my heart. I think there's a phrase in Hasidut that says, nothing is as perfect as a broken heart. And mm-hmm. some, nothing is, is as whole as a broken heart. I feel that when I, even now when I pray, when I put my talus over my head and have some sense of the journey inward as is being as infinite as the journey outward. Hmm. Thank you for saying that. Often people ask me, you know, what kind of rabbi you are. It's like, it's kind of feels hard to explain. So I usually just say that you're a renewal rabbi. Yeah, I think it's fair. What does that mean? You know, the kind of rabbi I am is that I never wanted to feel um, uh, uh, uninvited or not at home in any Jewish setting. Reform, conservative, orthodox, secular, Israel, America, Europe. I just wanted to be a, I wanted to be a, a a Jewish traveler in these years that I've been given on this earth. And I'll just tell you a story. You know, like a lot of renewal rabbis, because of the of the feminist thing, because of gender issues, all things that I care about and which I, I embrace. But a few years ago in Rosh Hashanah, I went to Uman. And Uman is where Rebbe Nachman is buried. Um, and, and it's packed. 40,000 people go for Rosh Hashanah because Rabbi Nachman said, be with me for Rosh Hashanah. So people would first go to Meron before the Soviet Union fell, so they could be with Shimba Yochai's soul, which they thought was the same soul as Rabbi Nachman, the great mystic Shimba Yochai, who said he wrote the Zohar. Um, And then uh, Rabbi Nachman, uh, when you could go to uh, Ukraine, poor Ukraine, people started going to Ukraine, and I went with my friend Micho Odenamer, and um, boom! I mean, that was boom. That was like, people were jumping. People were, they were, they were, it was their whole, they were, they were completely engaged. When Franz Rosenzweig was going to become a Christian, the great Jewish scholar in, in, in 1912 or 1913, um, uh, he was going to go to a big synagogue to say goodbye to Judaism and there's no room for him. And so he, he went to the Hasidic um, shuls in Prenzlauberger and um, in Berlin and, um, and all of a sudden he found people really davening, arguing for their life, saying, God, I really need you. Just like I want you to do now, you know, and, and what you're doing when you say two-way prayer, you are arguing for your life. You are really putting yourself on the line. The more you put yourself on the line, the more prayers about. And Uman is like 40,000 people on Rosh Hashanah putting themselves on the line. They're willing to look funny. They're willing to be discriminated against because they wear funny clothes and funny hats and they have long beards and they have payas and they only eat certain things. It's all worth it to be in a, in a moment in which you put yourself on the line and your heart breaks and therefore you feel, at least in those moments, whole. And And... I, I, now there's this terrible war in Ukraine and they even bombed Uman for some crazy reason. I don't know what they were bombing. There's hardly anything there except the grave. But at, at least on that Rosh Hashanah, those 40,000 people or however many it was, almost entirely men, really form into a gushahad, into a, into a, into a single block and you feel the prayers go up. Most of the people in the renewal movement won't go because of gender issues and reform movement, they would feel totally out of place and the conservative movement they would, they would have other commitments to it. And even in the Orthodox movement, they may still stay home to be with their family, 
but I wanted to go because I just want to go for the davening. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to find the nakudatova, the, the 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 good point within myself that I could I could make glow for a bit of time, and I could and I could illuminate you. You know, and 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 I could be illuminated by you. And 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 that way, I think I could at least gaze at your beautiful face and see a bit of the glimpse of the face of God. You know. And that's that's what I feel. I feel it even now, sitting next to you. I don't usually get to do this with you. I only get to see you over Skype. But here you are, right next to me, and I see the shine on your face. And for me, that's what prayer allows me to see. All right. Well, I think this has been a another good episode. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much to add, really. Just uh, grateful to get to do this with you and learn from you. It's and, a great privilege for me. And, uh, you know, we'll... We'll have some some time together coming up. We had this weekend together and uh, we stayed at an Airbnb in the town of Catskill that turned out to be an old recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had thought maybe the, the host would let us uh, use it for our podcast, but he didn't. But either way, it was a it was a very interesting place to stay with lots of uh, rock records that had been recorded. Mm. I think Tears for Fears, Tracy Bonham and many- yeah, many, many other artists um, had had been there. And you could like feel this kind of intense creative energy. And so even though we didn't get to record there, or we didn't, we could have recorded anywhere in the house because we're not fancy. We don't have a studio. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> someday, please, please God, someday we'll we'll have a merchandise, you know, with our logo, maybe like a, a pea pod and our faces in it. I've I've been working on I had I had put the logo on SoundCloud. But uh, it was uh, it was cool to get to see all that, and um, I do yeah. think that it was it's it's connected to all this because I think the music of the '60s and '70s and '80s and even until now um, are the American attempt at prayers. Um, there's a new documentary on Leonard Cohen and his Hallelujah prayer, and it's he was you know it's, it's Leonard Cohen. My friend Ruth Calderon told me that she watched him put his hands in the Kohanic way, you know, the blessing way in uh, Tel Aviv and bless all the people that came to hear him. And they, she said it was like going to a big shul, you know, it was big and feeling a great, uh, you know, a great transfer of power from through him, you know. And so I, I think all those, all those songs that got recorded in that place, I figured their karma stuck onto the walls. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope our karma will stick onto the walls. And I love Thank you. you. Thank I love you for you listening. <laughs> Bye.